to uh, introduce our next speaker, uh, who is Dan Anderson. And though I don't really think that Dr. Anderson uh, needs an introduction, since most of us here know know him and know of him, uh, I will say a few things uh, just for those of you who don't know about Dr. Anderson. Dr. Anderson is a clinical psychologist, and he is the uh, president of the Hazelden Foundation. Uh, Hazelden was started in 1949, and it is a not-for-profit institution. And uh, Dr. Anderson has been with Hazelton for 20-plus-some years, I believe. Um, he's been involved in treatment programs there, training programs, publishing educational materials, consulting and development, and applied research. Dr. Anderson also teaches part-time at the Rutgers uh, Summer School of Alcohol Studies at the University of Minnesota and at the University of North Dakota. He's also a member of the advisory board uh, to the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism in uh, Washington, D.C. And I'm very uh, grateful that Dr. Anderson has agreed to speak to us today. Um, I will ask for three or four volunteers to come up to help hand out some material that Dr. Anderson has brought uh, for us. Dr. Anderson? Thank you so much, Dr. Gregorius. Ladies and gentlemen, I can't possibly compete with cocaine, even if I had some. Right now, this is a different kind of a subject. I don't trust overhead projectors or blackboards, or so I use handouts. It's just a simpler way for me to do it. And I think by way of introduction, what I should say is I'm here because Bill Daniel asked me to be here. I like working for him because he lets me say anything I want to say, and he lets me try out what I call new stuff. And for me, this is new stuff. And the trouble with new stuff is I always worry about it, and I usually refer to it for the first couple of years as Anderson's Folly. When we start new programs at Hazelden or something like that, I call it Anderson's Folly until I'm sure they're going to work, and then I don't know what we call it anymore. I used the term folly for many, many years, and I didn't even know exactly where the term originated from. Once in a while here at the Morristown Group, they have people from England. Anyone here from England? They could just as well tell us what a folly is. I learned about it about a dozen years ago driving to the countryside there, and somebody pointed out there's a folly over there, and there's another one over there. And, of course, a folly in England, the wealthy young men are put through college, and then they're given a year to go to the continent to sort of get the wild stuff out. Then they come back, settle down, get married, and build their own home. And, of course, this home should be an outstanding and innovative and new thing. The trouble is some of them get lousy architects and wind up building follies. They're just architecturally, they don't hold together. And that's the only thing I'm worried about this discussion this morning is it may be Anderson's folly. And I have to let you judge that. That's about all I can do. Uh, uh, Bill Daniels thought I was going to tell the story about the bear and tell the story about the revolutionary use of alcohol and drugs, and I'm not going to do that. This is a touchier subject. I'm going to make some critical comments about medicine and health care. I don't intend to do that. It's taken out of the literature. 
and what's called the biobehavioral studies of illness. The topic I'd like to talk about by definition here has to do with chronic illness and what I hope we might discover someday are some commonalities of coping with chronic illness. Let me try to illustrate one of the problems I've been worried about for some time. I stole this out of the New York Times last year, and it's out of uh, Jane Brody, is it, her health column. And it reads like this. Duet Stetton Jr. was a leading scientist at the National Institute of Health when a progressive disease of the retina rendered him legally blind. Even with corrective lenses, he could barely see at 20 feet what people with normal vision can see from 200 feet away. Although unable to read or drive, Stetton was not told about AIDS to improve the quality of his life by any of the seven ophthalmologists who treated him during 15 years of increasing visual loss. Distressed by the apparent disinterest of ophthalmologists in blindness, Stetton wrote in the New England Journal of Medicine about his own discoveries of some of the hundreds of devices and programs that can improve the lives of blind people. His comments drew letters from hundreds of people with similar experiences. I have nothing against ophthalmologists. My interest here is really that this man had a chronic illness and wasn't getting too much help with it. Now, here's how I happen to get thinking about chronic illness. These are provisional remarks. Remember, the last word isn't in yet, and there are alternative explanations. I don't pretend to know anything about medicine. I'm just cutting through this, the area of illness at a certain level of analysis to see what happens. One of the things that seems to be obvious is that alcoholism and drug addiction are increasingly being accepted as treatable illnesses. Uh, uh, all of this has improved dramatically over the past few years. Nevertheless, all at the same time, addiction is a huge public health problem that's largely ignored and denied, that's shunned and rejected and stigmatized and rationalized and explained away and left untreated. It is not only alcoholics that deny addiction or drug addicts, the, the community, the culture denies it. My question has always been over a period of 30 years, why do we try to deny alcoholism? Well, the common and straightforward explanation goes something like this. Alcoholic behavior, addictive behavior is unpredictable, it's unstable, it's irresponsible, at least at times. Drunken comportment or timeout behavior is unacceptable. Social behavior, and there's a lot of violation of cultural norms and standards, and that's why we deny and reject and don't like alcoholism and drug addiction. Then I had asked the question, but is this an adequate explanation? I don't think it is. Look at how tolerant our culture is of intoxication in general. Look at our variable, our inconsistent norms about drinking and drug use and standards. Our historic tolerance of DWI, things like that. The occasional and excessive and inappropriate use of beverage alcohol is not only common, it's tolerated and it's very permissive in our culture. So I'd ask the question, what else is involved in alcoholism besides intoxication? And of course, the outstanding characteristic, the public perceived characteristics are chronicity, presumed untreatability and incurability, as well as the reluctance of the alcoholic to accept or comply with some kind of a treatment regimen. Thus, in addition to drunken comportment, which is socially disvalued, alcoholism may also represent other culturally unacceptable pathological aspects of illness behavior. That is, the chronicity and untreatability and the incurability. And the question is, maybe this is why we stigmatize and reject and find alcoholism and drug addiction contemptible, not merely or even necessarily because of the condition of drunken comportment. So then what I had to do is become interested in other chronic illnesses. 
What I want her to do is look at other chronic illnesses. It doesn't matter really what they were as long as they were seriously incapacitating. It didn't matter whether they were mental or physical. The questions I was concerned about is how do people manage to live with other chronic illnesses? Not only the victims, but significant others. How do professionals handle chronic illness? For example, do people with other chronic illnesses respond to their condition with pathological behavior similar to what we see in alcoholism? How do professionals handle chronic illness? Uh, is it possible that professionals also ignore and deny and reject and maybe leave untreated other chronic illnesses, not just alcoholism and drug addiction? And further, what I was looking for, are there any commonalities of coping or caring? Is there anything we can learn from looking at chronic illness in general? Now, for me, it's the first attempt to explore this sort of ubiquitous area. This is a very brief outline. There's a partial bibliography on the back of the outline. The bibliography includes another five, ten pages. I just too cheap to include it in. In general, you all know this. Health and longevity mean a great deal to human beings. The major healthcare concern all over the world for all of us is how long will we live and how often will we be sick. And all at the same time, the major healthcare concern in the developed nations of the world, especially government healthcare economists and insurance providers, what they're interested in is cost containment and healthcare cost reductions. And you all know about the healthcare budget and the gross national product and things like that. You also know about all of the recent attempts to reduce healthcare costs ambulatory medical and surgical centers. And remember, I don't know anything about medicine, but it bothers me a little bit. I don't care if you can take out somebody's appendix on the dining room table at home at reduced costs and give away dishes too. I don't care if you can take tonsils out on the kitchen table and reduce costs. That is not where our real problems are. That is not where our real problems are is my hypothesis here. So there's all kinds of things, cost shifting and everything else, to reduce health care costs. And some people think also the thing that we should do is get more involved in primary prevention, spend more than 5% of the healthcare dollar on primary prevention. This discussion is not about primary prevention. Primary prevention has its own chronic problems that I'm not going to deal with here. Uh, what I'd like to focus on is the concept of chronic illness. And the first problem here is to create a gross differentiation between the meaning of acute illness and chronic illness. This is not well spelled out in the literature, and I had to look over in a bunch of places to even find out what the differences were. Again, these are provisional statements. I didn't originate them. I am not talking about alcoholism now. Maybe here and there you may think about alcoholism, talking about really other chronic illnesses. First of all, what are some of the characteristics of acute illness? The literature says in acute illness there's usually an abrupt onset. The illness of a, is of finite duration. It's limited in time. The inconvenience is temporary. Pain and suffering are limited, at least in terms of duration. Financial hardship is limited. Remission or death occurs in a very short time is the outstanding characteristic. Not only that, but victims and significant others maintain their personal and social acceptability regardless of the outcome, win or use. And the best historic examples of all of this, as you know, are the infectious illnesses, the great killers of 30, 40 years ago. Now, of course, with life-saving medications and therapies without question, Modern medicine and scientific technology have produced tremendous medical advances. This approach in the literature, the biobehavioral literature, by the way, this acute illness approach is called the basic medical model. Some people object to that terminology. Some people say it fits very well. Very quickly, let me tell you about the sequential relationships that are usually involved here. Not always, but usually. 
A disabling illness is found in a large number of people. The causal agent is identified as an outside force, an external agent, a germ, virus, bacteria. Causation is really more complex than this, but it's usually kept simple. The victim is not held personally responsible for contacting the illness. Professional technology and expertise dominate the caregiving. A cure is usually affected with the use of one kind of drug or another, one kind of therapy or another. And with few exceptions, the patient as victim plays the role of a relatively passive and naive beneficiary of care throughout the course of the treatment. The professional caregiver, on the other hand, remains relatively active, knowledgeable, and in control. And I think it was Vass that says it. The physician prescribes and the patient complies. Now, somewhat oversimplified, this is how professional health care is defined. And this basic medical model is described as an acute illness, cure-oriented, fee-for-service, episodic intervention model, and it really works remarkably well. But on the other hand, there's something else called chronic illness, and it seems to be a radically different phenomenon for everyone involved. What are the common characteristics? Remember, this is a gross general description. First of all, the literature says, and you've got to sort this out and find it in the literature, there's usually a more gradual onset. The illness is of indefinite duration. It may develop insidiously. It may linger a very long while. It may come and go episodically. Remission or death may not occur for a very long time. There may be a great deal of pain and suffering, at least periodically. Financial hardship may be astronomical, even with health insurance for catastrophic illness. There is repeated or intermittent or constant stress of increased impairment, of permanent impairment, or death. And you all know the contemporary examples of chronic illness, various forms of cancer, heart disease, hypertension, arthritis, diabetes, asthma, emphysema, kidney, chronic pain, physical and mental debilitation associated with aging, the experience of death and dying, all of the mental illnesses, alcoholism, and drug addiction. John Brantner from the University of Minnesota reminded me that I may have left out a huge area of chronic illness that we ordinarily don't think about. Holocaust survivors, displaced, dislocated persons, like Vietnamese people in the United States and the Hmong people and things like that, they have certain characteristics of living with a chronic social kind of illness. In general, chronic illnesses do not respond well to the basic medical model, the acute illness fee-for-service episodic intervention be cured or die model. And the question is, why is this? There isn't too much literature here, but there's two basic statements that are made in the literature, either overtly or covertly. First of all, physicians and other healthcare professionals are trained to administer treatment to observe rapid results in the clinical courts, and the patient should recover or decline. Do something. On the other hand, patients and significant others are not trained to cope with chronic illness to make adaptational responses. I think it was George Agee, the writer, who said, you know, worse than dying too soon is to live too long. Now, why is chronic illness so important to us? Why am I so concerned about it? Because it looks like from the literature, and that's hidden in the literature, that it's the major healthcare burden in the developed nations of the world. It would also be the major healthcare burden in third world countries, but they're still fighting acute illnesses. Lowell Levin of Yale University estimates for the United States that, first of all, in 1900, 80% of the people who were sick were sick with acute illnesses and only 20% with chronic illnesses. Forty years ago, chronic illness represented about 30% of all diseases. Today, chronic illness represents 80% of all diseases. 
Now, expressed in terms of cost, the proportions are similar. 80% of healthcare resources in the United States are now devoted to chronic disease. Thus, for 8 out of 10 of us, the, our actuarial destiny is to get a chronic illness, to live with it for a very long time, and then die from one of its direct or indirect effects. Now, I'd like to say something about what's called the tragedy of chronic illness. The main problem in chronic illness seems to be the devastating psychological and social impact. One must live with a significantly and permanently disabling condition. There is no real hope of cure. Freedom to function is sharply reduced. The illness literally determines one's lifestyle, one's behavior, and that all depends upon the specific illness now, but one's behavior can become increasingly stereotyped and repetitive and maladaptive or compensatory depending upon the illness. The cause or causes of the illness are complex and ambiguous. Now, I know that's true of acute illness too, but it really shows up in the chronic illnesses. The signs and symptoms of chronic illness are frequently unpredictable and ambiguous. They may come and go unpredictably. One may get better or worse unpredictably. Why is my arthritis better this week than it was last week? Was it really my mother-in-law coming for a visit? Why is my alcoholism better this month than it was last month? Is it the weather or what is it? That sort of thing. Uh, the illness can be present even if it's in remission. Symptoms may not be seen until the advanced stages of the illness. And, of course, we see this in alcoholism and drug addiction, and I'm told by cardiologists it's seen in heart disease and maybe others. Shame and guilt are also involved, excessively involved. And the definition of shame here is the sense, I am a limited, defective, deficient person. There's a sense of self and social contemptibility. I am a disvalued person because I have a chronic illness. Guilt, on the other hand, is involved. Somehow I'm responsible for this chronic condition. I violated the rules of good health care by something I did in my past life, eating or drinking or doing cocaine or tobacco or something like that. What's the major tragedy of chronic illness? Reviewed the literature, tried to find some statements there that made sense. And the one thing that seemed to jump out by implication over and over was the idea of loss of control. I thought we only talked about that in alcoholism and drug addiction. But loss of control seems to be the name of the game. The single most devastating psychological impact of chronic illness on anybody is the sense of loss of control. The repeated threat of loss of control, of actual experiencing loss of control over significant portions of one life, one's life whether it's mental or physical functioning or managing one's life in some fashion or the increased dependency upon other people, whatever it happens to be. Even the increased loss of control over the responses that other people will make are involved, how they will respond to one's chronic illness. Thus, how one responds to the experience of chronic illness and loss of control seems to significantly influence how one bears the chronic condition. In some literature, this is called how one bears the unbearable. So I tried to look up in the professional literature, how do people live with chronic illness? There isn't too much literature there. But what we're talking about is how do people bear the pain, the suffering, the helplessness, the uncertainty, the ambiguity, the unpredictability, the loss of control. It looks like some people respond heroically and appropriately. And one of the main factors that seem to help here, and this is found in some of the professional literature, is that knowledge helps. And it also helps to have a value system. But for other people, the response to chronic illness is pathological. And this literature shocked me at first because what I saw over and over again was all of the symptoms of chronic alcoholism. But all of this was happening to other people. 
When I talk about this now, I'm not talking about alcoholism. I'm talking about some of the symptomatology, the response that some people display to whatever kind of chronic illness they have. What are some common responses? People ignore obvious symptoms. They do nothing. They have a wait-and-see attitude. They diagnose and medicate themselves. They consult a friend or a neighbor. They delay or completely avoid professional diagnosis and treatment. And when they do seek professional help, they do so only in crisis and emergencies. And then they want a quick fix of some kind. They usually deny that the illness is chronic. They don't always follow expert advice. Non-compliance is the word you people use. I thought alcoholics were the only non-complying people. Almost everybody with chronic illness is a sort of a non-complier from the kind of literature I've been reading. Uh, they minimize or rationalize their reduced ability to function frequently. They respond to the experience of chronic illness with a number of disturbing and bewildering emotions and behaviors. They respond with bewilderment, shock, helplessness, depression, grief, demoralization, loss of self-esteem, shame, and guilt. They display anger, resentment, self-pity, self-loathing, childish dependency, or defiant independence. They regress into narcissism, perfectionism, pickiness. They become preoccupied with themselves. They become preoccupied with maintaining control over other people, over their environment. And the paradox of this, as we see in alcoholism and chemical dependency over and over again, the more the alcoholic is in loss of control over his or her use of alcohol, the more they want to regulate and control the world and the universe and the galaxy and keep everybody else under control. See? Not only that, but many of these same pathological responses happen to significant others as well and to family members, and that's the crazy part. First, I thought this only happened in alcoholic families. Thus, uh, when family members also respond pathologically, we wind up in a situation where how the patient responds to the chronic illness influences significant others, and how significant others respond also influences the patient. Some of you work in hospices or with death and dying, Talk to some physicians who do that, and I've asked them questions about resentment and self-pity and denial. And I say, you don't know how terrible it is. We, we just get the dying patient all lined up to accept death. They relax. They look better. Then the wife comes in and says, he looks so good today, he's going to make it. We say, please, shut up. Be quiet. Don't screw things up right now. You know, we're, And you got to do it to the relatives, too, in other words. There are some healthy coping responses to chronic illness. But I can't find much of that in the professional literature. The idea is, how do people make sense out of chronic human suffering and the threat of increased loss of control? The subject isn't discussed as near as I can see in the professional literature, but it is discussed in various personal narratives. The personal narratives go back, remember, to the beginning of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's 1935, and it goes back, of course, to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and her original stuff on death and dying in 1969. It looks like AA and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross were the people who first gave people permission to talk about living with chronic illness openly so that it could be communicated. And so there's a number of personal narratives that go way back. They're increasing. Some of you remember John Gunther's Death Be Not Proud, Stuart Alsop, Betty Rollins, First You Cry, Norman Cousins, Anatomy of an Illness, Cornelius and Catherine Ryan's A Private Battle, Martha Wyman Lear's Heart Sounds, and Jeannie Morris's Brian Piccolo, and Norman Klein's Sunshine, and many autobiographies of recovering alcoholics. A man that's reviewed this literature had this to say about it. What he's doing is sorting out now how do people respond to chronic illness? How do they make some sense out of it? One of the first things he says 
is to describe what it's like to have a chronic illness. And this is, he does it this way, I'll see what you think about it. He describes having a chronic illness as being involved with death's other kingdom. He says, to be seriously ill is truly to enter another country. It is death's other kingdom, the world of darkness into which you descend, in which one confronts the repressed negative self. The daylight world of living becomes a hospital, a place of omnipresent fluorescent light, stainless steel and ceramic tile, rigid schedules, rules and diets, alien instruments and machines, painful procedures and mind-altering drugs. The ordinary dreams of the future of infinite time become the nightmare of the finite moment of this test, this operation, this treatment. The self that sought to be loved and respected, strong and superior, good and loving becomes the other, inadequate, unworthy, powerless, hateful. Hopes are replaced by fears, the fears of disease, spread or recurrence of pain and death are compounded by fears of abandonment, of unacceptability, rejection and isolation. The isolation is claustrophobic. One feels finally contracted into a body whose smallest, hitherto simplest function is monstrously threatened. The mind is forced obsessively back to that body in its cycles of pain and alleviation. Sounds like a terrible hangover, too. What do people do under these circumstances is the question that Kennedy asked as he summarized this autobiographical material. What people try to do, it seems, almost uniformly, is to try to make some sense out of the experience if they think about it at all and don't deny it. They try to grow beyond the crisis. He says they try to examine their way of life. They try to find personal meaning within the crisis. They try to order and redeem the suffering. And people who go through this seem to go through an experience, and this is not AA literature now, that leads them to a sense of surrender, a sense of acceptance, language that I only thought was reserved for alcohol and drug addiction. They develop a new understanding of their life. They find they can live with certain value systems and they start affirming them like love and work and caring and community. And the terrible feelings of why me up there can turn into why not me. And for some of these people, it looks like they can have what's called a transcendent vision of the meaning of their life. And somehow that can take place. Even with death and dying, there can be life and living. And you know, I read this and I don't believe it all. And then somebody tells me about a 23-year-old guy racked up in a motorcycle accident, quadriplegic, who can honestly say six months later, I wasn't even living before this happened to me. This is the first time I've ever started living. And I'm happy under these circumstances. Now, I don't want to have that happen to me to find out. But it looks like it can happen. And some of you have seen it happen to people. But developing healthy and coping responses to chronic illness, it looks like from this literature, can best be learned and lived within a caring and supportive environment. Both the professional literature and autobiographical literature here concurs that you do need support, you do need help. But now we come to the part of this where I'm really on my own. The literature is not clear here. I've tried to put some stuff together. It seems to me, if we're dealing with 80% of the people who are sick, are sick with a chronic illness, it looks like what we really need to develop is a support network. I call it a collaborative network. I call it a role resource collaboration model. Now, this exists only in an adumbrated form so far. The literature is not clear. Most of the people who say anything about it are looking at one little aspect of it within a certain illness, and they don't see the broad picture at all. Three related factors are important. 
And all of these factors have very real limitation. Each one is necessary but not sufficient in itself alone. And the three factors involve acute professional care, what I call self-care and healthcare education, and self-help group affiliation. Very quickly, let me say what I mean here. Acute professional care is, of course, needed, but it has to be understood that the real needs of chronically ill people go well beyond formal medical and psychiatric considerations. There are other physical and psychological and social and spiritual factors that really must be dealt with. These are called global quality of life factors to develop healthy adaptational responses to chronic illnesses. That means to conform to some conditions and transform others, and they're difficult to measure, but people with chronic illness are acutely sensitive to all of this. The next level of care is self-care and health care education. The next level of care here is the self-help group affiliation. As some of you, and in the acute professional care level, one of the greatest things needed here is to teach self-care and provide health care education. The trouble is, is this can have a significant impact on how people respond to chronic illness, on improving the quality of their life in chronic illness. But all of this has to be taught, it has to be monitored, either by professionals or trained volunteers, and it needs to be practiced as a matter of personal responsibility and personal motivation by patients and significant others. The other thing that's in the literature, it says, in one way or another, sometimes openly and sometimes in veiled form, professionals don't teach self-care very well. They really aren't too interested in teaching self-care. It's done very quickly and haphazardly. I'm told there's a lot of literature on this, on professional and patient communication, and that if you even have one other third person in the room or behind a one-way mirror, even then the communication improves. But I haven't reviewed that literature yet. The next level of care here is the self-help group affiliation. As some of you know, there are now over 15 million members of self-help groups in the United States alone. And these people all are people usually with chronic physical or psychological illnesses, stigmatized conditions in other words. I think the self-help group movement led by Alcoholics Anonymous is the fastest growing, most extensive form of self-care for chronic illness in existence. Self-help groups can be very, very helpful and very economical for both the victims and significant others. But the trouble is, many of us think that they should be formal social service organizations. You just call up AA and tell them to come over and pick up the body or something like that. And of course, that doesn't work. You know that. It doesn't work in other self-help groups either. The difficulty here is that self-help groups, these are small groups usually of fellow sufferers. They're small groups. They're usually fragile. And they're gradually developing more and more wisdom based on the experiences they're having coping with whatever particular chronic illness it is. And their experience and their caring skills varies with the type of chronic illness. Alcoholics Anonymous, of course, is the best example of a mature, fast-growing self-help group as well as Alana. Very quickly now what I'm talking about, I call it this role resource collaboration model. I hate that language, but I can't think of anything else. What's the major weakness of this model? The major weakness is that within these three support services, acute professional care and self-care and self-help groups, there really isn't much collaborative interaction. There isn't much communication. What's really needed is a combination of mutually interactive and collaborative caring forces and that they all make a concerted effort to bring about the highest level of human coping and optimum response possible for whatever chronic illness it is, not only for the patient but for the significant other. 
So then I started reviewing the literature. Are there any examples at all in the literature where somebody has tried to put this together in some kind of fashion? There are some examples, but people don't talk about it as a comprehensive kind of thing. But there are some examples in the literature. Mental illness. We're too close to New York and Newark and things like that for me to be talking about this, but I will anyway. The deinstitutionalization of the mentally ill. I know you think they're all walking around in Manhattan, but they're not. A lot of them are home and functioning very well. The whole movement to depopulate state hospitals was basically a good movement. They just didn't develop a good continuum of care outside of those institutions. But what happened here is they got a number of paraprofessional mental health workers, they developed some patient self-help groups and some self-help programs for families, and they are doing some good, and the good they're doing isn't as good as it could be, but it was better than the total institutional model that came before. Now, they haven't even begun to catch up with the continuum of care that we've developed for alcoholism, but maybe that will come in time. Then I reviewed some of the literature on schizophrenia. Schizophrenia may well be a physiological, genetic illness, whatever. And the interesting thing about it is when people learn that they can also intervene with the families of schizophrenics, that you can significantly save a lot of money and reduce recidivism rates. A guy named Michael Rorabah reviewed this literature very, very recently using, and they studied controlled studies, experimental controlled studies. You can compare the treatment of schizophrenia with formal mental health professionals, compare that to another approach called the family approach, and find out that family education and uh, significantly reduces rehospitalization over traditional treatment and improves medication compliance and reduces a lot of symptomatology. This kind of treatment, by the way, started in England a few years ago. It's called evoked emotion. If you can just take the relatives of schizophrenics, significant relatives, teach them to stop being so damn critical in crying when the client gets home that you can significantly reduce recidivism rate and return to the hospital and save a heck of a lot of money. Drug abuse in young people, not only cocaine but other drugs. About 23 million people over 12 years of age have used illicit drugs of one kind or another. And there's considerable use here and abuse and addiction. What's happening all over the country, spontaneous development of a certain kind of self-help group. Groups of parents, concerned parents. They have different titles, different names. But suddenly they get together and say, look, I've had about enough of this. We've got to do something about our own adolescence and our family. Let's get together in the neighborhood and see what's going on. National Institute on Drug Abuse recently gave $209,000 for a two-year grant to study this kind of spontaneous parent self-help action kind of program. And I think that this is a remarkable kind of study to do because if we're going to help people in these kind of conditions, we're going to have to elicit the support of people in self-help and self-help groups. Asthma, reading some of the literature, teaching self-care to asthmatics, particularly children. This is the leading cause, apparently, of chronic illness in children. Self-management is very important in young people. And one study done by the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute found that in several experiments that they could reduce the number of days lost in school, reduce hospital costs and emergency room visits, and save about $11.50 for every dollar spent on the program. And the essential thing about the program was to teach young people in small groups how to manage their own asthma attacks. Diabetes the same way. I'm not authority on any of this. Diabetes is very complicated in terms of all of the regulations, remember. 
that the, the, the victim must make, and successful treatment seems to depend entirely almost on self-care, and this becomes very, very complex. But it looks like if one seriously tries to structure diabetic classes, develop self-help groups, that this very structured teaching and support groups can produce some remarkable results. And the University of California Medical School has demonstrated this in a self-care program for diabetics. They reduced diabetic coma by two-thirds and saved hospital and patient costs by about $1.4 million over a two-year period. Chronic pain. I first became interested in this when I found out that pain clinics were stealing our trained alcoholism counselors to work there. And I wondered, what in the heck does that have to do with chronic pain? Then I started reading the literature. The most widespread form of chronic distress in human beings seems to be chronic pain. The costs are staggering. This literature has been reviewed recently by Turk, other people. What is there about pain management centers? What do they do there? One of the things they do is create a collaborative interaction between patient and family members, healthcare professionals, and groups of fellow sufferers. And what they do is strengthen patient motivation to adhere to a treatment regimen, ongoing maintenance of treatment effects, and a combination of both individual and group treatment works best. How do they use recovering alcoholic counselors? Recovering alcoholic counselors recognize cheats and liars at 100 paces. They make them stick to the regime, make them get involved, tell the family member, check on them, make sure they do the, the thing, and they talk it over quite openly. If you're going to recover at all from this, you're going to have to follow the rules. And they teach them to do it. They teach them to do it in small peer groups. The hospice movement is another example, and I don't want to belabor this, but this is a very particular kind of self-help. The goal, of course, is to improve the quality of the experience of death and dying. It's a rapidly growing thing. It's now becoming kind of bureaucratic because of federal rules and regs and all of that. But it's a good example of the blend of professional care, self-care, and self-help group. And research says that that uh, hospices can provide better pain and symptom control, better psychological and spiritual support for both the patient and the family, better self-determination, shared community, shared compassion, and the maintenance of some kind of individual human dignity compared to the usual kind of what's called peer-oriented healthcare megastructures. Now, the list of chronic illnesses where something is being done with this role resource collaboration model could be extended to include the physically handicapped, the aged to some degree, mentally retarded, hemophiliacs, mental and emotional disorders, the obese, people with certain cancers, heart disease, hypertension. But you look all of this over, nothing really compares with our present level of understanding and treating the chronic illness of alcoholism, what we call the comprehensive treatment model. It looks like it is the most sophisticated of all of the models to help people live with chronic illness. There's better interaction here, even though there are criticisms too, and cooperation between professional caregivers, self-care, and self-help group affiliation. The, the basic assumptions here, you know, is to treat the alcoholism as a chronic primary progressive illness. We know that a caring philosophy works better than a curing philosophy. Treating it as a multiphasic illness with physical, psychological, social, and spiritual aspects. Or as AA says, it's an illness of mind, body, and spirit. All of this is true. Using a multidisciplinary staff, trying to arrest the illness rather than cure it. All of that is important. The range of the continuum of care within acute professional care is all important. The teaching of self-care is so important. Uh, to teach patients to practice self-care. 
And that's one of the reasons I'm trying Anderson's folly out on you. You know, one of the reasons you're here is to really practice self-care the best way you know how. And this is one of the best ways to practice self-care. See, it's interested me in the very early days of when a patient alcoholic comes to treatment and you want them to go to AA afterwards, you develop an aftercare plan. You know what we do in most knowledgeable, sophisticated treatment centers today? We write out the aftercare plan. We make the patient write it out. We do it in triplicate, give him a copy, call him up a month later to see if he did it. That's how to teach self-care. We'd like to tattoo it on their frontal lobes if we could. The need to help people immediately to start working on a self-care plan is very, very important. We know how easy it is for alcoholics to slip away from going to AA or going to some other uh, 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 self-help kind of thing, and we've learned to do that. We think all people dealing with chronic illness should learn to do what we're trying to do in the field of alcoholism, that sort of thing. Uh, plus the affiliation with a self-help group, plus the affiliation of the family program of Al-Anon and things like that. And some of you have heard me say this before. Sometimes, strangely, I think that the condition of alcoholism is a metaphor that stands for the human condition in many, many ways. The condition of living and facing up to any number of chronic illnesses, trying to cope with one's own humanity, whether that varies from the extremes of grandiosity or inferiority, or the extremes of exaggerated dependence or exaggerated independence or the extremes of selfishness or altruism. We all have to balance that out in one way or another in life. And I think AA is the vehicle that's done more to help teach us than anyone else. I'll be through in just a moment now. I wanted to say one last word. What is our greatest need right now? If chronic illness does represent 80% of the illnesses in the developed nations of the world, if we need to do something about it, if the destiny of most of us is to get a chronic illness, what we really need to do, whether we're dealing with chronic physical or mental illness, is to try to develop more controlled studies using the role resource collaboration model. I think we can demonstrate some uh, remarkable cost savings by truly extending the network of care to include good self-care and self-help affiliation. But we also need to develop what I call an information and exchange network so people using the model with different chronic illnesses can communicate with each other about treatment strategies and self-care aids that can be used with one particular chronic illness or another which might be useful in all kinds of other ways. I'm amazed to see the number of self-help groups that are borrowed directly from Alcoholics Anonymous and they've been able to incorporate that into their program in all kinds of ways, but we haven't studied this as well as we might. Each field, I think, may have provide certain skills that we could use in the alcoholism and drug treatment field, but in our field we have skills that other people can use as well. Some of the issues that I think we should explore. How are professional helpers most and least helpful dealing with people with chronic illness? How do patients and peers view their professional helpers when you have a chronic illness? How do professionals and peers view patients with chronic illness? What are some of the best and worst ways to teach people to cope with a chronic illness? In reviewing all of this literature, when you talk about chronic illness, what's the best way to teach people? In small groups of people who all have the same illness. <laughs> comes right out of AA. But this is learned independently over and over again. People don't learn to look to AA and then discover it. They invent the wheel themselves. Uh, how do self-help groups vary from one group to another? 
uh, from one group of fellow sufferers to another. For example, how do people in Emotions Anonymous differ from people in AA? How do people in any number of self-help groups differ in how they structure their groups? How do Gamblers Anonymous differ from AA? How do Overeaters Anonymous differ from AA? There are many, many similarities and some differences, and I think we should know this. How are they all similar? You know, are there some fundamental commonalities here? I think the spiritual part of the program is very, very important. That's openly expressed in some programs and not in others. Uh, patients with similar chronic illnesses, it seems, are very good at learning from each other and teaching each other. The subjective experience of having a chronic illness seems to be very, very important. And in terms of learning theory, that's called vicariation. And all vicariation learning really means is role modeling. Most of us learn best through role modeling. You don't have to know anything about theories of learning. But what I'd love to do sometime, what I'd love to do, this is my fantasy, I'd like to get 10, 20 professionals, like physicians, psychiatrists, people like that together, all who have experience working with chronic illness. Then I'd like to get 10, 20 patients or victims of chronic illness who are still alive and coping. Then I'd like to get 10, 20 significant others. Then I'd like to get 10, 20 leaders of different self-help group movements. Get them all together in a room. Give them each five minutes to talk about one new strategy that they learned where they're at and see if there are any common factors in these strategies or any differences. Very quickly now in closing. In thinking about coping with chronic illness, developing healthy adaptational responses to chronic illness, we see this happening with alcoholics facing up to their alcoholism. We see it in other people facing up to whatever chronic illness they're facing up to. It seems to me that when people do learn that they can live with a chronic illness, that they can modify their lifestyle to cope with it, that they can cope with the reality of the day something else happens. And I've been trying to define that for some time. It's as if after facing up and meeting one challenge, now they're more ready to face up to other challenges in life like practicing better health maintenance in general, like modifying their lifestyle to prevent other disabling conditions. I can't prove this, but I think recovering alcoholics in AA all over the country are getting help for any number of other problems they have because they sobered up, gave them... But see, what I'm trying to explain here, it's almost better to have a chronic illness and take care of it if you're going to stay well in a bunch of other areas. Now, a simple way to put that... Drunks don't get their teeth fixed until they sober up. But see, that this isn't the way that prevention is thought about. Prevention is usually thought about as a primary kind of thing that you do way back here when you're young and healthy and careless. So the way this theory works, at least for some people, I think that chronic illness and living with it can be a pathway to wholeness and health. Now, that's kind of paradoxical. And I really thought I invented that new idea. And I haven't invented anything yet. Unfortunately, I read Lewis Thomas's The Newest Science, and on page 114, he quotes Judge Oliver Wendell Holmes. Remember, Judge Holmes lived to be 96 years of age, and somebody asked him how he lived to a ripe old age, and he said the key to longevity was to have a chronic incurable disease and take very good care of it. And then I talked to a cardiologist, and I was telling him, look, do you think it's possible, is there anything to this, that if you get a chronic illness and take care of it, that you're practicing good health maintenance and prevention in other areas. He said, gee, Dan, that sounds like a good idea. He said, but I worked with Dr. Paul Dudley White. Remember President Eisenhower's cardiologist rode a bicycle for 100,000 years? All of that. 
He said, Dr. White used to say, give me a room full of cardiacs. They'll live longer. Now, he meant cardiacs who knew they were cardiacs. We're doing something about it. Now, I don't even know if that's true. But then the guy reminded me the unkindest cut of all. He says, you know, Paul Dudley White had a copy of an inscription in his office. It was taken off of an old Grecian urn. And what the inscription said, in Minnesota now we say vase, we don't say vase. The cracked vase lasts longest, if that makes sense to you. So much for reinventing the wheel. And uh, keep up with the good self-help group work and all of that sort of thing. Thank you very much.